weighing your oatmeal in the morning, like weighing your oatmeal, weighing your oatmeal in the morning. I know you're stoked. I know you want to go out there and smash. This year's your big year. Chicago is a tough guy town. Baby mama's never forget that it's the fall that things really matter. Yeah, go like this. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. It's a grip wax nation sensation. Tofty is a tough guy town. My baby is drama, mama. Don't like me. Doing things like having a wood. insane and OCD about every workout being like perfect and weighing your oatmeal in the morning. It's Shovel Lake Public Radio. It's a baby and not a paycheck. Private school, daycare, medical bills, I pay that. I love you, mom and everything. Callaway is a tough guy town. Bemidji is a tough guy town. Wow. All right, everyone. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. You have come to the right place, the largest and fastest growing Nordic ski specific podcast in all of Lake County. And we are so glad that you are here. The snow is here. We've been on snow for over a week up here in Leadville at 10,000 feet. You know, here we are. And we've got a great show for you today as well. We're going to be talking about all sorts of different topics. A little bit hard to even, you know, summarize things. So I think the best thing to do is just, as the man, the myth, legend, Devin Kershaw would say, get right into it. So that's what we're going to do. Thank you for joining us. Shovel Lake Public Radio on the Cedar Skier Podcast. All right, so first things first, uh, it is November 3rd, or, well, it's November 2nd as we're recording this right now, so who knows when it actually gets published, probably like December 10th, Um, but as of right now, we've been on snow, I think we've been on snow eight days, which is just fantastic. Uh, my transition into the snow season, a little bit different every year. Um, I was chatting about this with a friend about how interesting <laughs> the fall approaches have been and it, how that is kind of a, I don't know, almost anathema approach when you, in the Nordic ski lexicon when you consider how dedicated Nordic skiers typically are about ramping things up in September and October and just being rearing and ready to go for November as if really the matter. Super Bowl is taking place um, over Thanksgiving training camp. Weighing your oatmeal um, in the and morning. And not like... been the approach. Three years ago, um, my first year in Leadville, my roller skis broke on the first morning of my first day at work. Uh, this would have been, you know, what, August 20th or something like that. And so I went from August 20th until October 20th without doing any single minute of Nordic ski specific training. Uh, I was doing a little bit of running, but I was coming off of a really long injury there. So I know I didn't run more than 45 minutes ever. It was a lot of 20-minute stuff, 30-minute runs, uh, going in and trying to lift weights a little bit afterwards. I just, uh, it, it was rough. And then I would mountain bike for two hours after school almost every day. And hey, you know, we had an early snowfall that year, got on snow, started skiing, was terrible for about a week and a half, like weak and just not, yeah, not strong at all, but uh, gradually got into it. And by, I remember by mid-November, I was feeling, you know, totally 
fit and ready to go. And by January, you know, had skied a ton, had a great race season that year. And the next year did a lot more roller skiing and a lot later roller skiing and a lot less biking. Had a good year that year too. Um, this past year, kind of, kind of think of, well, this year, you know, my off season has looked like a lot more running, a little bit of a shift to biking, um, a lot less roller skiing, I would say, than any of the other years. But, you know, a much more seamless transition into snow now. And I, I, I'm feeling good and strong and not all that different than I have before. Uh, so if you're out there, you're kind of the type who's like, you know, your goal is maybe a Berkey or your goal is, you know, just to have a good full lop it racing season, January to March. Uh, my encouragement to you there is that I don't think there's anything wrong with taking the seasons as they come, bulking up on hours and do it in different activities and kind of changing your mindset so that in the summer, maybe you kind of just go, Hey, I'm a trail runner right now. And do you roller ski? Yeah, a little bit, but like your focus is on that. And late summer into fall. Hey, I'm a cyclist now. Um, and if, especially if you live in a place like Colorado, this is one of the greatest places for biking and trail running. Maybe one, maybe the greatest place, um, in our country in terms of weather and terrain access. It's just, it's great. So there's just no sense in my book of, I don't know, burning the candle out on the ski side when you could be out having a great time doing a different sport and also building fitness. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes those periods of low fitness in a sport are just really essential to kind of, um, keep the engine burning hot when it needs to be. So anyway, there was, there was that little rant and the update now is, Hey, we've been on snow for eight days. Turquoise Lake road is the car grooming happened. We got some good snowfalls and you know, it's just like a little ice box over there and it doesn't really melt. So great double polling uphill 5k about 4% grade. And we've been trying to get after it a little bit. Um, Ajay co-producer, the pup is enjoying those sessions tremendously and we'll kind of continue, uh, keeping it going. It looks like we will have some snow later this week to, to keep it up as well. So thinking snow, uh, it looks good. This, the outlook for winter is looking positive. It's looking like it's going to be a good year and that's exciting. Now on my last show before the one Tyler Cornfield, not sure if you saw that, but go back and listen to our interview with Tyler Cornfield. That was exciting too. If you're like way out of the ski season mode right now, that might get you back into wanting to hammer some, um, five hour double pull sessions or whatever. Um, he's got a great story. We're going to follow him a little bit better this year. And you know, one person who will be following him is the ski classic super fan. It's a grip. And I'm just going to give him that moniker. We're going to keep it that way. Ski classic super fan. He'll know who he is once I'm done telling this story, but I was over at his house. I got invited Felt like I was like a guest of honor at the Ski Classic Superfan's house a couple of weeks ago. We, um, he, had, he, his wife made this just tremendous meal. Uh, the greatest cheesecake. It was a sweet potato cheesecake that was to die for. Maybe, maybe one of the best desserts I've ever um, eaten before. So got the tour of his house. We had he put on the 2021 Vasilopet right when like guests were entering into the house and so that was just playing on repeat I got to sit in his massage chair which was amazing I got a tour of the um ski closet he looks ready to go I tried to steal a pair of his uh Speedmax double pull skis but he he said that that wasn't an option he also showed me some of his roller ski 
roller skis, roller ski collection and his uh, basement fitness center. This was just, it, it was a grand tour. It was wonderful. It was just a wonderful day. I just felt so honored to get to tour the Ski Classics Superfans house and just take it all in. Um, and it, it really did motivate me to go like, wow, you know, like it's okay to really love long distance Nordic skiing and you can do it for a lifetime. And so Ski Classic super fan. I know he listens to the show. We're so happy that you listen to the show and give us tips and pointers and feedback and uh, let us come to your house and enjoy a nice meal with friends. And, and now I'm motivated to get back out there and train. So uh, that was a couple weeks ago. I got sick. I've been out for two weeks. It was kind of a reset button for me. And now we're back skiing. Anyway, let's let's hop into some topics today because there's a lot to get to. And the first thing I would like to touch on, maybe we should make this quickest, the quickest story uh, first. So we try to knock out some of these things. The first thing I want to talk about actually is the this the Ironman World Championships. Not sure you may have missed this here, but. Chelsea Sodaro won. Uh, she was a surprise winner of the Ironman Kona World Championships, ending a, an American drought, um, which, let's see. I'm trying to get to the story here. When was the last time an American woman won? First American to win since Tim DeBoom in, 20, in 2002. First American to win the women's race since Zimbabwe turned American and Paula Newby Frazier in 1996. Okay. Uh, and she's the first woman to win in her Kona debut since Chrissy Wellington took the first of four titles in 2007. So Sodaro, uh, October 6th, wins the Ironman. The crazy part about this story is she's a 33-year-old mom with an 18-month-old, okay? And she was a elite runner, All-American at Cal, placed 19th in the 10k at the 2016 u.s olympic track and field trials i actually found a video on let's run.com of her winning an indoor title in 2013 she turned a triathlon in 2017 made some podiums on the world cup circuit moved up to long distance racing in 2018 fourth place at the 2019 world championships that was her last major championship start before the pandemic pregnancy and childbirth and then a move up to the full this year okay so you get the story right great runner collegiate runner all-american kind of tries her her hands at the usatf make the olympic trials kind of circuit here for four or five years after college and probably reaches the pinnacle of that in 2013 when she won an indoor title um and it's a cool video uh, if you google her name chelsea I, I think her name was chelsea riley now i'm am i just pulling that out of my butt i don't know this is possible um See, I probably wrote this down in my notes somewhere. No, I did not. Well, anyway, if if you Google even probably Chelsea Sodaro, and, and you'll 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 be able to find the Let's Run threads where they're talking about this crazy sprint finish because I think it was 2013 Indoor 3K. She she held off the favorite of that race down the home stretch and and won. And there was kind of like a collision at the very end, and they sort of fell over and had some track track burns on it. But the reason I bring up this story. Okay, kind of has to go with the comment I saw on Let's Run.com in their message board. And this is this is earth shattering for a couple of reasons. The first being that we found a gem of a comment on the Let's Run.com <laughs> message boards. Actually, I do peruse those periodically because I think there there's a lot of gems on there. There's there's some definite banter, some sort of inappropriate banter 
back and forth. But it, it's definitely a place. It's a mine that you can you can you can mine away for some some gold down there if you're willing to dig. So here's the quote. It says, "Way to go, Chelsea. Her story is pretty awesome. She was a big talent coming out of high school, but struggled with injury problems at Cal." I don't think I've ever seen someone as dedicated to cross-training and injury rehab. Many people in her situation would have given up. She ended up having some solid performances when healthy. Then she went on to run mid-1520s and finish fifth at USA's in the 5,000. When she switched to try, I was surprised given her running success, but it seems that she couldn't stay healthy for long stretches while only focusing on running. It's awesome to see her reap the benefits of years of perseverance. She had more than her fair share of setbacks and good reasons to give up. I think most people in her situation would have ended their athletic careers at 19 or 20, and here she is at 33, reaching the highest point of her career to date. It couldn't have happened to a better person. Okay, so, yeah, just how inspiring is that? There's a lot of lessons in there. You know, the idea that a sporting career is going to have ups and downs, and you got to weather those storms. And Tyler Cordenfield brought that up in our interview as well. He said that if you if you want to go pro in skiing, you have to be willing and committed to weather those storms. And those are, in many ways, what I'm most thankful for because they really shape me as a person. You know, that that's kind of the message that he had sent, and it's very true. And it's also very true that most people now, less and less, I would say, are are willing to do that. They're very much, they're just not as um, gritty in that sense over the long haul. Not that they're not tough in the moment. I think there's some, you know, surface level toughness there that everyone has. And there's some people who are gritty still, but that's a general cultural thing I think that we've kind of lost. It's it's very much like we're very more pragmatic of do this thing that works, switch now. We're impatient, you know, um, and sometimes we think we're so smart and ahead of our day compared to athletes back in the day that, you know, we're just going to follow the science and, and do this thing or that thing. We forget that, like, at the heart and core of athletic performance, even at the highest level, is the ability to um, persevere. And the part of the reason that that's so important is because you never really know when your chance to reach the pinnacle will come. It's sort of, I think the metaphor that's almost appropriate, honestly, is like thinking about summiting Mount Everest. Some people go to Mount Everest, they fly in, they do their acclimatization, they get to base camp, they've got their team going, and when they hit that zone where um, the summit day attempt draws near, they have perfect weather, they get up, they get down, and it, it kind of is almost like, wow, you had no struggles on Everest. The mountain that kills so many people, the mountain that has 10-day storms and just craziness, you just, bam, you were up and down in the one day, and, and there it is. You summited Mount Everest. And, and some people's sporting careers are kind of like that. And you see they, hit, they have lightning in a bottle when they're 21. They win an Olympic gold medal in the 1500 or the 800. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the Jakob Ingebrigtsen's, the odd thing most. And they they have this um, incredible success at that age. And some people, that is the high point of their career. 
and either they struggle with injuries or they just don't progress, they don't get better than that because this truly was the high point, uh, or a myriad of other reasons that, that prevent them from going on and succeeding beyond that. And, and that's okay. We, we shouldn't try to go, okay, if you won Olympic gold at 20, that means you should set a world record at 24. And that means at 28, you should win your third title. And, you know, like not everyone's is linear in that, in that sense. And there's some people who at 20 are completely off the map, have to switch sports, have to endure injury and depression and all sorts of trials. And then at 33, after they've given birth to a, a son or a daughter, they change a sports yet again, train and win a world championship. And I think it's just a great example um, and gives a lot of hope to athletes as well. The ones that are willing to go after it for over the long haul and who truly want it, um, it you don't have to try to squeeze your body into the or squeeze yourself or your goals into some sort of mold that like, this is what I've always wanted to do. And I got to try and reach success here. It's like, be willing and open-minded to try some new things, but also be willing and open-minded to know that like your training might be setting you up for your highest level success at an age that you didn't expect it. Um, so there, yeah, I think there's kind of two lessons there. There's one sort of almost for the master's athlete or the citizens racer. Who's like, Oh, now I'm at that stage in my career where there's only personal worsts coming. It's like you don't have to adopt that mindset. You really don't have to adopt that ever. But at least wait until you're like, I don't know, 70, okay? And then you can start going, you can start laughing at yourself for having personal worsts. But but until then, I think, you know, you got to have that positivity of there's still personal bests to chase. There's still pinnacles and peaks to chase. So go after it. And then I think we also have to look at if you're a coach or, or if you're an elite young athlete, to recognize that um, being really great at 15 is a great thing in and of itself. Being really great at 20 is a great thing in and of itself. You don't have to just sit on and dwell upon the idea that since you were super good at 14 or 15, you have to hit now this new step um, and this new peak at 19 and a new, another new peak at 23. Now, hopefully that happens. Of course, that's what we're striving for. Hopefully we see people continually progress, you know, and that's, that is the mindset, I guess, to per se that the you should be striving for is constant improvement. Um, but to recognize that not everyone is going to progress in the same linear fashion. And there, you might actually have an athlete that their athletic, um, Super Bowl occurs at the high school state meet. You know, and then others might occur their senior year at a Division three national meet or a Division three regional meet if you're not as good like me. Um, so, and that's okay. That's okay too. No, I rewind that, Ajay. That wasn't my athletic pinnacle, right? I'm st- I'm in the Chelsea Riley, Chelsea Sodera category of like we're gonna continue, we're gonna wait long enough until everyone else, all the competition is gone. So when I'm 85, I will finally get to make my first U.S. team of some sort, even if it's U.S. Masters pickleball. You know, we're going to be there. So that's the goal. How do we get to pickleball Pickleball off of that? I don't know, but that's why you come to the Cedar Skier podcast. You come here for this, I think. Uh, Let's take a quick break, and then let's come back, and let's chat about Marie Borgen turning in Therese Johag uh, kind of in terms of um, eating and worry, but it was a positive thing. So don't worry, people. That was just my tease. That was an attempt at trying to get you to come back. This is the Cedar Scare Podcast. You're listening to it on Shovel Lake Public Radio. Hello. 
This is Glenn Hansen of Shovel Lake Public Radio. Joining us today on this Cedar Skier Second is the head coach of Shovel Lake's first Nordic ski program, Jana Tweet. Jana, thank you for joining us today. So, Jana, we understand that you are organizing the first ever inter-squad match between the Russian national team and our own Shovel Lake Nordic Ski Club members. Well, absolutely, and I think, um, you know, being neighbors, um, that we have a little bit of a rivalry with hmm. through other sports. Yeah, I'm not sure if neighbors is the right word, but we'll go with it. So, what have you been telling the troops as they prepare to face one of the best Nordic ski teams in the entire world? Um, we know that we have to take them seriously. Mm. Um, and um, and it's my understanding that you guys are now ranked number six in Nordic ski clubs in all of Aiken County. And so I'm just kind of curious, how did you get, how have you built this program to that level? Yeah, I think, you know what, we've, um, we've worked hard to get the recognition um, to put us at sixth uh, over the last couple of years, even building into this program. Now, do you guys think that you have a legitimate shot at taking down the Russians in a Nordic ski race? We've, we've seen a lot of upsets happen in, in yeah. the past, and so... Uh, and the race itself sounds like it'll be 270 kilometers with four fence crossings. Yeah. I, wow. Um, are Do you think your 10-year-olds are ready for that kind of a distance? They, they have the heart and the fire um, to want to go the distance. And um, and I think like our chemistry right now, um, you know, we have the skill to do what we need to do, um, and our chemistry and energy feels really good right now too. Well, that has been the Cedar Skier Second. I'm Glenn Hansen, and you're listening to Shovel Lake Public Radio, a product of CedarSkier.com programming. Right, so coming back in here, I teased this story about Marie Borgen and Thres Johag. And um, the t- this is from NRK, courtesy of, the, of Nordic Insights, my new website of choice now, of going, toward, going to for domestic racing news, World Cup news, features, multimedia, links to blogs, all that good stuff. I'm really liking Nordic Insights right now. And... I got a story posted, uh, published on there as well. So maybe I'm a little bit biased, but you should go check it out. We got our Tyler Cornfield story up the uh, World Cups to World Loppets. You could go read that on Nordic Insights. But so I'm reading my media feed for the week or they're kind of weekly. Here's here's all the things that happened um, in the news media. We'll, we'll kind of conglomerate, collect all of them. And one of them was about Thres Johag, and the story basically links to an NRK story that talks about how Johag was struggling um, for periods in 2010 and 2011 to get enough nutrition. Her weight was dropping, and at one point, she, um, the team's captain, Bjorgen, noticed that the 22-year-old was getting thinner, and she took action and made contact with the team's nutritionist, um, so she, she sent a report of concern there, uh, and Johag was glad that she did. The quote kind of, this is translated, but Marie, Marie always had the ability, is it Marit, Marit or Marie? 
I don't know how you pronounce these things. I need to figure this out. As I always had the ability to care about everyone, so it would have been natural for her to bring this up with me. She had an important role as captain, and there was a good feedback culture. And then it kind of talks a little bit about how um, there was this nutritionist that the team kind of had hired. Um, oh, I'm going to scroll down here. Where is it? A lecture. Professor... Joran Sungat Bjorgen at the Norwegian Sports Academy gave a lecture for Johag and the junior national team talking a little bit about weighing food. Bjorgen was like, that's a dumb idea, blah, blah, blah. So that, there was kind of a twofold thing here talking about how this whole idea of <coughs> Johag was underfueling. Bjorgen noticed it, pointed out to the team nutritionist. They got the help she needed. Uh, fix the problem before it got too big, but also kind of tracing it back to this junior national team experience where a nutritionist lecturer kind of came in and was talking about the idea of, of athletes weighing food, which sounds a little bit like that could have been tied up with just energy balance. But of course, always a slippery slope, dangerous topic, no matter no matter what the context is. Um, and so this, this was a story out there in in the Nordic ski world, and in my my show prep notes, someone asked me if I was prepping much for the show, and I, I really don't prep much for the show, but what I do do is kind of keep a Google Docs running where I will, if I see something or I think of something, might write down a thought, and 75% of the time it makes into the show, and 25% of the time it just doesn't, and sometimes it just gets pushed down in the queue list. But this thing that kind of came up near near the same time was um, on Mile Split. USA. So Ali Ostrander, she posted a, or she didn't post actually. She was she was kind of part of a video that Mile Split produced. It was about ten or twelve minutes long. Her talking about um, her relationship with food, her eating disorder, working through those things, um, through really kind of like middle school to present. Um, and it was it was I thought one of the more interesting videos on the topic that I've seen. My initial thought, though, and I wrote this down, too, of kind of like, I got to bring this up, is because this is something that I feel like in the endurance sports media world right now has just constantly been, uh, we're sort of beating a dead horse, I guess, to use the metaphor. There's just a lot of discussion about it, a lot of people sharing their personal stories. Um, yeah, all these all these things have come come right out. And it, it can get a little bit fatiguing. So the thing that I, I was going to give advice, I guess, if anyone else wants to add to this discussion is if you're going to have, if you're going to put something out there, you can be personal and you should be, you know, re revelatory, but don't be cliche. Just get to the point, have it mean something give your unique side of this it's it's frustrating when you you pull up some article where someone has opened up this personal side of their life this personal story they're they're struggling with food or whatever and then you got to read through like three-fourths of the story is just is something you've heard a million times before or they kind of go on this rant about uh, you know their their opinion about how to deal with these things. Like we just we actually probably should would value them be valued the most if you would just say your personal experience and then we can try and glean from it. Or at the end, if you want to kind of like make some suggestions, fine. But but I think it you know just from and again this is this is maybe 
not really that important, but I'm just saying, like, if you want a chance of having yours be read and considered, having it be unique, having it be personal, having it be revelatory, and having it get to the point and cutting out the cliche fluff uh, would help. So I thought actually this mile split one did do that quite a bit. It was very revelatory. It was interesting. Like, they did a good job of putting in clips of Ostrander when she was like seventh grader running, you know, like, and her talking and she's transparent kind of just naturally. Um, but had also kind of, you know, thought through the things that she wanted to point out. And, and her story is kind of, it, it is, every story is a little bit unique, but you know, I thought, I thought there were some things that you could glean from it. So I'll let you watch that and you can, you can pull from it what you will. I won't, won't spend time, pulling out the nuggets that I thought were important. What I will say is, and this is this is more of a unique take, might ruffle some feathers, so I'm sorry if it does. Ho- hopefully, if you know me and you know our show, like you know that we are we we care about people. We do we know this is an issue. This is this isn't like a um me saying let's let's make light of this issue or mock people who struggle with this. Certainly not that. Uh this is a serious thing. Uh, and it's it's not something you'd wish on anyone, okay? But but here's and and that's actually why I'm bringing up this topic is because I think it's important to kind of I don't know commentate on on something if I feel like we're not we're not addressing this fully in the best way. So here we go. Here's here's kind of my my take. If if you are someone who is Spartan enough and Type A enough to the degree that you would be capable of restricting calories while training. It's also very likely that when you seek recovery, you're just as capable capable of flipping kind of to the other side of the ditch. So what I mean by that is like, it does seem like part of this recovery process for these individuals, if, if one side of the ditch is total restriction and the other side is like an overeating, you know, both of those things are improper relationships with food and ideally that's the goal of recovery is that you have a healthy relationship with food, (laughs) you know, um, food for performance, food for health, enjoyment, all of those things. And I feel like we're a little bit inconsistent kind of as a society when it comes to disordered eating. We, if we're going to try and say it's just about wrong relationship with food, I do think we have to be and more, more recognize more clearly that there are both ditches and, and it seems like we're very careful as a society to you know in just our regular conversation we would never say something that would push someone to restrict but we're, we're pretty lackadaisical with how we might direct someone to go to the other side <clears throat> and again kind of going back to this like if you're someone who is already spartan enough type a enough like your personality is kind of an all-in personality anyway. So so finding balance and moderation is going to be difficult by its nature. So, you know, like that's kind of at the heart of this psychologically. And this was sort of brought up a little bit in the video um, that was produced on mass, but is they had a scientist on there too. And it's like, hey, part of part of understanding this problem, part of healing is you got to understand the individual and how they're perceiving and viewing the world. And that that is very true. I don't feel like we really do that on the side. It's like there's there is this sentiment of, hey, you need to eat, which of course is true. That's true in multiple senses. You know, you literally need to eat to survive. You also literally need to eat to fuel your training, you know, but it almost 
and, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here, but as someone who even I think has has battled this, certainly not not like probably to the degree that like Ali Ostrander has, and definitely not on the same pressure state filled stage as she has. You know, I'm nowhere near that. Um, but certainly I, I, I have kind of walked through some of these psychological hurdles and, and when it comes to food, all that, and, and what I feel like the sentiment and the tone behind the, like, you need to eat food as fuel, all that stuff. It's, it's a little bit, this idea of, come on, dude, quit being such a Spartan, come and join the rest of us, (laughs) you know, like let your guard down a bit. You're so disciplined. It's just stupid. Like stop that, you know? And we kind of. I know the the goal is to bring someone to right relationship with food, but what is also being attacked is like Spartan-like discipline. And the reality is, is Spartan-like discipline is a very dangerous um, attribute. It, it, it can be wildly dangerous and also very beneficial to you, to society, all those things. Like being very disciplined, being type A, it's a it's you're always kind of on thin ice when you when you're doing that you know and but but we have to recognize there's there's positivity there too like honing in on that people who are like that all that stuff like it's not something i i think that we need to go hey just the type a personality and spartan personality in and of itself is bad no i would disagree with that so i i am not a fan of a healing process even for an eating disorder that attacks that and i i feel like that is what society does. Okay, it's just my opinion. You could be you could say I'm just totally off. Maybe this has nothing to do with like, you know, a healing center or what they're doing there, whatever. I'm talking a little bit more just how lackadaisical society as a whole is on tending to go, hey, you know, underfeeding that's awful. We're not gonna like I'm never gonna say something at all that would possibly push you to restrict. But I am going to freely, free and, you know, wheel and deal any comment that might push you towards like overeating, even if it's just a little bit of overeating, you know. And the classic example of this, though, the thing I think that is evidence of this is that if you see um, a video clip or an interview, uh, an athlete racing, and they are even a little bit they appear to look thinner than they did six months ago. There's sort of this hush whisper of like, are they okay? You know, something's wrong. They look too thin. Like those are thoughts that creep into every fan's mind, coach, athlete, co-competitor's mind. Like, Like we are so, we tend to do that. And if you see someone sitting down for an interview and they look like they're 10 pounds heavier than they were six months ago, you would never, you would never like reach out and go, I'm, I'm worried that like something's wrong. You know, that, that athlete used to seem like they were right razor sharp, uh, race weight, you know, ready. And now they kind of look like, you know, they've gained like 10, 15 pounds, you know, because I, again, I think as a, as a society nowadays, we sort of celebrate that. And that's like where we want everyone to come is more like this, the, the ideal is if you're 20 pounds heavier than you, than like race weight, that's actually the ideal, you know? And, and I think we just should pause and go, that's not healthy either. Like, again, if the goal is healthy relationship with food, healthy relationship with body image, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't direct people to, to the other side of the ditch just to avoid 
you know, the left side of the ditch. You know, and I think that's kind of what we do sometimes. Maybe that's the best way of summing it up is, you know, we're we're trying to avoid the left side of the ditch, but in doing so, we're totally fine driving right into the right side of the ditch, uh, which just seems kind of inconsistent. And that's that's the thing I would I guess I would point out. Now, I mean, it does seem to me as I've kind of followed some athletes who've gone through this, maybe gone through this a little bit myself, talked to people. Yeah, everyone's journey is a little bit different in how they come through this as well. So maybe that's important to recognize that you know, part of the he- healing process, especially depending on how type A or how Spartan you are, might involve flipping back and forth a little bit and um, struggling with something else that's totally different. And maybe you, you can kind of find this equilibrium, um, any of that stuff. But I don't know. I thought this added a little bit to that conversation because I don't feel like anyone really kind of has the guts to sort of come out and say that and and it seems like it is present so I guess that was kind of my goal is like oh is anyone else sort of noticing this uh when it comes to this discussion and I know it's a little bit of a fatiguing discussion so we'll move on to something else all right a more light light light-hearted note here um as the unofficial official Ian Torchia paparazzi you know the person who is following around the torch making sure that he's living life the way he's supposed to be living it uh yeah he doesn't even know this right no there's no way you know, he is listening to the cedar square podcast but um if he ever does and he sees this show hopefully you know that you know we've come to respect the man the myth the legend quite tremendously especially after his halloween costume is the office themed halloween costume uh torch had a story actually he was featured in the nordic insights after his 227 marathon which by the way i will say right now i'd like to um 100 stake that i called that just on the nose i mean if you go back and listen to our shows i basically said I looked at Strava. I looked at Torchia's workouts. These are very similar to when I was training for the half marathon and my marathon. And, you know, when I ran at altitude, my marathon, I converted to a 227 Minneapolis, uh, Twin Cities marathon. I was like, I, I bet Torch runs somewhere in there. Now, Torch had super, su- super shoes. So who knows? Maybe, maybe either, you know, he's more of a 230 guy or maybe I'm more of like a 224 guy. Who knows? But um, <clears throat> anyway, called that. I called that. And he had a great uh, Halloween costume, him and his wife. And he's kind of like apparently living the um, once a runner themed dream up in Michigan, which is cool. I love it. I love how he's like kind of taken the Dave Ramsey approach, live like no one else now so that you can live like no one else in the future. And it, it's cool. Like, I don't know. I, I For how much I, I think I probably unjustifiably ripped Torchia during his World Cup career, I've now come around to be more, much more of a fan. But anyway, um, when I was doing some study on, you know, show prep on uh, Torch's high school career, I was kind of curious, like, how fast was he in high school? And so I was trying to deep dive, and I ended up on this total rabbit hole of like filing through old Minnesota State High School cross country running results, which are so fun to do. I mean, I, I honestly think that, you know, if I had to live in like a bunker for six months or something, like as long as I had access to um, raceberryjam.com or Milesplit Minnesota now, you know, I could probably occupy at least two or three months of just kind of going through names. Now, 2009, the Class A, 
by the way, folks, two classes, okay, in Minnesota. Like, ah, uh, we've now we've now switched to three. This is a very recent change. This is a absolutely awful mistake. I'm gonna get to that in a huge rant here in a moment. But first, class A. 5K, 2009, here's here's the championships. M- Mubarak Musa, a sophomore, won the state, the state title, okay? Uh, in third place, we got Jake Brown, the senior from Minnehaha Academy, okay? So Jake Brown, Olympian, Olympian, uh, he, he skied for NMU. I think he actually maybe was on Torch's team. They might have overlapped um, just for like a year, Brown's fifth year. Brown went to St. Olaf. And he ran in the Mayak at the same time I did. He ran uh, and won a national title as it, with a team. St. Olaf had a really good team that year. Um, and in fact, this state meet is filled with St. Olaf guys. But Brown, 1626. Now, this is at, um, at St. Olaf on that course. That's a very fair cross-country running course. Like, it is not fast, but it is accurate. It's hilly. It's grass. Um, it is, it's usually kind of cold, you know. But, but like, to run... Um, under 16 minutes on that course is good. Like you, you're, if you're in the 1550 to 16 flat range, I would say, Hey, you've got, you've got a chance to be a good division two runner. Like, you know, now and I'm winning, you know, Garrett Heath did 1511 on that course. And that's kind of the record Hassan Mead. Those are like Olympians, you know, they, they went on to become division one, all Americans. So this isn't a course where like, if you're from Colorado here and you're thinking, well, we got some kids who run under 15, you know, at, at elevation. It's like, you know what? I'd love to see what they could do on this course. I, I my guess would be like a Will Brunner. Love the guy. He's, he's an absolute stud. And he ran 1456 up here at 4,500, 5,000 feet in Grand Junction. Like if he were to run at this St. Olaf course, I would bet he would be in the 1525 to 1540 range. Okay. So, so I, I honestly think he'd be slower on this course, it's running a running on like soft grass is a huge difference. Soft grass, Midwest cold wind, hills. Um, I'm sorry, like that. If anything, it's going to equalize the altitude. Okay, so there, there we go. Just to give you some context, but Jake Brown, 1626, and I bring up these times partially because it's like, look at the progression that's possible. Kind of going back to that Chelsea Riley discussion. Like, hey, if you're out there and you're a kid, you're running 17 flat or whatever, like you can be great in college. Like you don't have to be running 1510 or 401 in the mile to think you can make it to college. It's just so annoying these days how kids think like there's this, you know, I can either make the U.S. ski team, I can get a full ride scholarship to Duke. And if I don't have either of those things, then I'm just going to like, you know, go to the University of Texas and disappear and focus on my freshman academic courses. Like, that's just a wild mistake. Okay, so anyway, let's go down the line here. This this is so great. I, I love looking at these names. Fourth place is Aaron Haley, a junior, 1628. Keep in mind, these are the small, the small dink Minnesota towns, right? Like where you go to get ice cream on a, a bike ride. Aaron Haley went on to run at St. Mary's, another Mayak runner. He and I actually ended up running pretty close together. He got he he grew um, into a good low 15, 15 fly 5K guy. Okay, fifth place, you'll know this name, Mason Furlick. <laughs> Here's another Olympian. This is our second Olympian in this Class A state meet. Mason Furlick, a junior, 1630. Of course, Mason Furlick is, what's his steeple time now? What, like 815 or 817? You know, he's a pro runner for the, um, out in Michigan with, um, the very good track club or whatever. They, they got kind of an interesting name, but ironically, that's the, that's the pro track team 
that Ian Torchia did some intervals with. So all these guys, like, their stories just intertwined, like, somehow, miraculously. But Mason Furlick, an Olympian, fifth place in the Class A state cross-country meet. Um, okay, moving down a little bit, we've got Grant Winthizer in eighth as a junior, ran 1642. I bring that one up because, you know, Jake, who was third here, um, Grant, <coughs> Grant way back from Jake, Grant became one of the greatest Division Three runners of all time and ran 8-11 in the 3K, won a national title individually for St. Olaf that year that they won the team title. <coughs> um, 3.46, I think, in the 1,500 or 3.48 was his best in outdoor. I mean, he could run kind of anything, and many-time conference champ. So talk about a massive growth there. You know, like he went to a program that was really good and and took off. <clears throat> Not sure what his best 5K time was. I want to say in the 14-11 range, you know. Um, he had some injuries at the very end of his collegiate career that sort of limited him, but... Keep going here. We got in 13th, Brian Saxa. He's another, like, almost sub-four-minute miler at St. Olaf that year. Where's my other Olympians, though? I'm going to keep going down. Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. This is crazy. All right. 41st, 41st place, a seventh grader, 1725, from Wasika, Minnesota, which I always knew about Wasika because, like, the local lumber commercials, I think. Seventh grader, Shane Strike. Shane Strike, 1725. You might recognize that name because Shane Strike now runs for the Atlanta Track Club. He's a pro um, 800-meter runner. He ran at the University of Minnesota for four years, maybe even five years. Didn't blossom the way he could have. He was a state champ in the 800 Minnesota, so goes to the local D1 school, kind of disappears a little bit, injuries, blah, blah, blah. His fifth year, he transferred, or his sixth year, it was one of the COVID years, he transferred to um, a different, smaller school, I think, out east. It's still D1, and he made it to nationals, and then this was the same year as, like, the Olympic trials, so he made it to the Olympic trials finals, just really blew up, like, um, in, the, in the 800. Had a great kind of banner year, so now he's a pro runner. <laughs> You know, and I think his dad ran with my dad at Little Moorhead State University as well. They overlapped. I'm pretty sure Strike, I think he was younger. So like my dad was kind of on his way out when when Shane's dad was kind of coming in. Don't call me on that one, but I'm pretty sure my dad told me that at one point that was the case. Um, going to, Oh, man, there's just so many interesting names here. Matt Welch, 61st place from Proctor. Pretty sure Matt Welch went on to be. No, that's I might be thinking of someone else. I was thinking he might be an All-American for the Gophers. Um, the last one that I'll bring up, I know there's more in here. I haven't really done it as deep a dive as I could have. But 112th place in 1823, eighth grader, Ian Torchia, Rochester Lords. Um That's crazy. You know, like how cool is that? That this this little dink race had some World Cuppers, some Olympians some national champions, some pro Olympic trials level runners. Um, yeah, just kind of cool. And there's gems like this all over the place, you know, uh, if you want to deep dive results. But Minnesota's got some great tradition like that. 
And I I do think it warrants looking at the ski results and kind of doing the same type of thing and going like, where are these people now? If you did that with just the winners, you'd have some really high profile stories, obviously. But but there's some second or third place finishers too that went on to go and do amazing things as well. Just remember, Jess Diggins did not win one of those years. You know, like she didn't even sweep all four. So uh, there's that. All right, and this, I think this is a nice transition to another point I wanted to bring up today about youth sports. We're, we're like jumping all over the place. So sorry, if you came to this show and you were thinking like, I'm going to get some great ski wax tips, like I'm going to know now how to grind my skis, what to do to have fast skis. I'm going to know how to train, training principles. Like, yes, we talk about some of those things. We, we talk about the things we can help you with, okay? I can't, so I'm, I'm limited in my capacity, all right? But- Sorry if you're like, wow, I came to the wrong place. This guy's just kind of philosophizing on all these different things. I think these are important discussions, okay, and I like them. So this is something I was thinking about um, that transitions from state meet, state meet result reading from 2009, and that is what what is the consequence of us as a society, as parents, as uh, uh, state high school leagues, expanding expanding classes so that there's more classes and kind of objectively, honestly, objectively watering down what it means to make it to a state championship, okay? What is the consequence of that? And I want to preface this by saying, you know, uh, this this is tricky, all right? Here's, here's where I'm coming from. I think on one side of the aisle, you have people who will say, who really cares? Going to state is a fun experience. It's a good, positive thing. If we can give that to more people, isn't that a good thing? So what that you as a fan don't get to try and have some other Hoosier story, um, some, you know, you know what I mean, where it's small school takes down big school and state championship game, and there's only one state champion. So what that you, so you're not, you don't get that, but that's rare anyway. It's not worth it. Like it's better for kids if we get more of them to get to go to state. And, and I think it's like the way I see it now, I've thought about this for a long time. Originally, it's just like, no, that's wrong. Like, that's not better for kids, you know, like, because you're, you're robbing them of um, the specialness of making it to state. Okay. And, and I haven't left that position, but now I've added (laughs) this thought of why the current way is working kind of for now. Okay. So here, here's what's going on. Parents today, when they were in high school, there was not a lot of classes. There was one or two classes. It was big school, small school, or just one class. So making it to state was a huge deal. And most of them didn't make it to state, you know, just because there's, there's just, it's just percentages, simple percentages. So like you had, um, you had that growing up, this idea of like in the seventies, in the eighties, even in the nineties, like Making it to state was in and of itself an incredible accomplishment. Being an all-stater or a state champion, that's something that, like, you maybe knew someone who did that. But even in my high school career, like, I knew one person who won a state title from our school. And that was, like, my friend as a sophomore just, you know, lightning in a bottle experience at the state cross-country meet. And that was, like, a generational, you know, first time in 30 years that a sophomore had won that race. And if that hadn't happened, like, I would literally have to go back and go, wow, none of my teams in the major sports made it to state. You know, you just like now that's that would just be 
uh, the chances of that happening at a school for someone like in their four years that that football, basketball, hockey, you know, all those things like they wouldn't make it to state would just be one in a billion. But anyway, so parents grew up with that idea that state special because it was. And then we expanded all these classes. So now everyone's going to state, but it's still special because it's still going to state. So the people who are saying this is a big deal are they lived in a different generation where it was a big deal. And I'm curious if 40 years from now, when the current crop of high school kids grow up and they have kids, if if state won't be a very big deal, because for those kids, they'll be like, oh, pretty much everyone makes it to state, you know, because that was their experience. We are giving them an experience that making it to the, to a state meet or a state tournament isn't that's just kind of like unexpected you at least ought to do that you know that that is it's like a baseline expectation almost you know and um so when those guys have kids like uh, they're not really gonna think that's a big deal now why does this all matter well here's the thing that that i would say like if we step back i i am maybe thankful for one of the things i'm most thankful for in my athletic career was the fact that I had sort of a paradoxical experience of feeling like I was really good in my little fishbowl and I had I had trained extremely hard just to um, make all of the cuts in basketball and and you know, of the 1,400 kids at our school, I was one of the four kids who, who wasn't cut before their senior year. You know, like that was the accomplishment. Very proud of making it through that and feeling like, okay, I must be pretty good. And then also at the exact same time feeling completely anonymous when you would play the teams from St. Paul and Minneapolis and not even that far, like Buffalo. You know, like you go around and you realize that, gee, even within just my state, Minnesota, you know, like there are dozens of teams that could beat us by 30, you know, and and that's nothing to say of the hundreds of players that are far more athletically gifted than I am. And sometimes even then I go, well, maybe I'm one of the best shooters in the state. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, but there's even if you're one of the best, you're you're in the top 50, you know, like there's there's a lot of kids doing what you can do. And this feeling of just like, wow, I, I, I'm really a small fish in a massive ocean. Um, that was huge. And so for me to never even make it past the section second round was um, was huge. That, that like impacted me, I think, in a very positive way moving forward um, in so much as it it gave me an accurate perspective of of what is true about athletics, namely, you're not that great. Keep, keep, keep grinding, you know, like you're not that special. Um, and it also served as that motivator though, of like staying hungry, you know, had I won a state championship, there's a, there's a chance I could have, if I had won a state championship, been an all American, like I might've just stopped really doing sports. Cause I've been like, that's, that was the pinnacle. That's what I wanted. But because I didn't, you know, like I had to keep striving for true success and it, it really helped me define true success and strive for it. And, and what could be more valuable than that in sports? Because those are the tra- the nature, the essence of transcendent values in sports are those things. You know, that's the stuff that applies to the rest of life anyway. And so when you, when you just like kind of artificially um, hand over that prize, that carrot that's in front, you're robbing kids of that. 
you're not you're not allowing them to to realize um, that uh, much of life is feeling like you are insignificant, and much of life is feeling like whoa, there's you know we're ranked seventy fifth out of a thousand, and we. Uh, didn't make it to state, you know, like <laughs> much of life is really like that kind of number um, of losing, knowing how to deal with that and 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 coming back and persevering. And But not only that, I know it's cliche to go like, you know, sports is that metaphor where you fall down and you can get back up and you work through trials. Yes, all of that is true. But even more than that, it's just get about getting an accurate representation of the world. Like, in the real world, not everyone goes to state. You know, do you, do you get my drift? Like, in the real world, not everyone goes to state. So if, if, you're, if we're kind of coddling an entire generation into thinking that that's not true, that everyone does get to go to state, like, we're giving, we're just handing them that entitlement. We are cultivating a culture of entitlement in, in youth. That's, that's very dangerous, and it's not helpful to them. It is not helpful to them. And and I think like when people opponents of what I'm saying, you know, they kind of are like you're just you're just being crotchety old man, you know, like and you're just bitter. Uh, no, no, I am grateful that of the experience that I have because it benefited me in the long run. And what I'm saying, I'm saying out of a position of like I care about our youth and I care about it. And I think what is best for them is not that we have 17 classes for high school ping pong. And so every single person is going to make it to state and everyone gets a medal and they can bring it home. Like you're, you're hurting them by doing that. And that's why it's wrong. It's like, it's, it's an ultimate uh, disservice to them. All this is to say, if I was the czar of Chassa or the Minnesota State High School League, I absolutely would try to make it big school division, small school division, and that's it. With an, uh, the exception being um, football, <laughs> probably. And, and I'd have to kind of look at the numbers, honestly, in Colorado, because Colorado football is a little bit interesting. It's not quite like in the Midwest where there's just every school has a football team. So, like, it makes sense. You could divide it into three or four classes. Um and I need not seven okay we don't need like seven classes of football uh even football and I think basketball you could you could maybe get away saying with three uh but oh gosh like cross country it should be two I'm sorry two classes and that's it like line them all up it'd be so epic it'd be so epic um I don't know and and state qualifying yeah, you got to win the region to make it to state. None of this. We're sending the top four teams, you know, like, gosh, you, if you have a pulse and you ran 15 miles over the summer and your buddies did too, you're probably going to get, go to state. Okay. That's not, that's not like universally true. I know there's some there. I know personally, there's some teams that have worked hard and they're in a, in a tough region and that's not the case, but man, that's, that like when you start getting into the 2A 3A regions you know like you don't have to think about making a state and and when we were going up like that was a huge goal you had to peak for the section meet like it was on it was on edge everyone because you had to be first or second in the region to make it a state and there was at least five teams that that usually could contend for that someone was going home like someone's season was going to be over and and then of course those teams might have one individual that would make it you know qualify as an individual but even that was cutthroat it was like top 10 you know it's just ah it bothers me man it that's i think it's a 
It's a disservice. And and this will kind of, I think we've built in the transitions on this show pretty well. This this leads us into what uh, this discussion of youth sports development, I think it is tied into it. Uh, and courtesy of a Facebook post from Jim Galanis, who kind of, he linked this to the Norwegian, uh, this Norwegian kind of like PDF file talking about um, their development model and how do you get kids to fall in love with sport? How do you get as many kids to go as far as possible, as long as possible in a sport? Um, and that's that's the nature of this PDF. We're going to talk about that on our next show. Um, but then today we've kind of we've gotten a perfect hour here. So we're so glad you could join us here on the Cedar Scare podcast. Check out cedarscare.com or um, go to Cedar Scare podcast on Anchor, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us. And um, anyway, keep on striving. Keep on skiing. See everyone. I know you're stoked. I know you want to go out there and smash. This year's your big year. New York is a tough guy town. Miami is a tough guy town. Lake Placid is a tough guy town. <laughs> Lake Placid is a tough guy town. She wants you to help her put her boots on. Presque Isle is a tough guy town. Fairbanks is a tough guy town. Shovel Lake is a tough guy town. Tofty is a tough guy town. Duluth is a tough guy town. Callaway is a tough guy town. Bemidji is a tough guy town. Novi, you're ruining it. Come on. What is your problem? You want to say something into the microphone? Say. Say hi. <laughs> Callaway is a tough guy town. Bemidji is a tough guy town. Ransack Junction is a tough guy town. It's Shovel Lake Public Radio. It's Shovel Lake Public Radio. 
You're listening to the Cedar Skier Podcast. <coughs> You're listening to the Cedar Skier Podcast. You're listening to the Cedar Skier Podcast. It's a Dalmatian sensation. It's a grip wax nason sensation. You say something. Say blah, 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 blah. Don't touch. Don't touch. It's a grip wax nason. <laughs> I can't say it. No, V. It's a grip wax nation sensation. It's a grip wax nation sensation. Oh gosh. So, Ruka is a tough guy town. Lillehammer is a tough guy town. Oslo is a You're going to give me too town. many and I'm not going to remember them all. Okay. Okay, you want me to write them down? Yes. No, Ruka. No, 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 no. Let me say them to you and then you say them. It'll yeah, that's okay, fine. Ready? Is it recording? Yes. It's still been so, okay, recording. So, Ruka is a tough guy town. Ruka is a tough guy town. Lillehammer is a tough guy town. Lillehammer is a tough guy town. Oslo. Oslo is a tough guy town. Moscow. Moscow is a tough guy town. Uh, Levy. Levy is a tough guy town. Reina. Reina is a tough guy town. No. Reina. Reina is a tough guy. <laughs> Good job. She liked it. Um, Vancouver is a tough guy town. Vancouver is a tough guy town. What else am I missing? I don't think I have a Swedish one. Mora. Mora is a tough guy town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like trip on my words. <laughs> I did. I did like seventeen takes of the Grip Wax Nation. No, I'm not. All. Oh. I'm not even done with all of them. Did you? Oh, go. I'm still going. working on them because I've been letting Novi okay. say things. <laughs> It's a Dalmatian grip wax nation sensation. I hate you right now. I think it has to be. Why? Why? Why am I doing this? It sounds a, stupid. I sound like I'm supposed to be five years old. Oh, yeah, you gotta sound more like. It's a Dalmatian grip wax nation sensation. That's how it's supposed to okay, sound. Okay, hold the baby so she doesn't make a noise in there. Then. It's a Dalmatian grip wax nation sensation. Hi, Ajay. That's a great point, Ralph. Joe Maurer is a natural athlete. Kick like Clabo. Kick like Clabo. Dig like Jesse. I think that's all of them, isn't it? Yeah. See, you liked it. No, I didn't. <laughs>
You were getting into it. 